Amen. Morning, family. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 91 this morning. That will be our text for today, Psalm 91. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a hardbacked black one nearby. Uh, that is our gift to you. Please, please take it and use it. Psalm 91, as we continue in this series that we've been doing through the summer that we've basically just called Summer in the Psalms, and uh, have had several different brothers that have come and delivered the word over the last several weeks, each one taking a different psalm and, uh, and bringing it and presenting it uh, to us as a body. And I pray that you have been encouraged. Uh, I know, because I myself can join you in this, that I've been convicted um, and, and that all of it, both in, in the encouragement and in the conviction, has been God's grace to us over the last several weeks as we have journeyed through these different psalms together. And so let's look at Psalm 91 together. One small piece of liturgy that we practice together as we read the text out loud with one another. And at the end of that reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you then to respond uh, by saying thanks be to God. Let's read together. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So we come to Psalm 91, and Psalm 91 is the second psalm in the fourth of the five books that are contained within the psalms. If you remember back to our first week, our introduction to the psalms, we talked about how that the psalms, within the psalms, are contained five different books, and each of those five books carry a certain theme with them. We said that the book of Psalms, not only could it be said that it's the, the hymn book of the Bible, but truly it could be called the hymn book of the king or just simply the book of the king. Namely, 
David, but also the true and better David, the true and better king, we could say that this truly is the book of the songs of Jesus. And so here we are in Psalm 91, the second psalm in the fourth of the five books of the psalms. And what we have kind of attributed a title to this fourth book, we have called it the King's Comfort in God's Faithfulness. The King's Comfort in God's Faithfulness. And even just from that title and hearing those words that we've just read together this morning, you can hear the comfort in the words that say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There's much comfort in those words. And so it's aptly named because book four answers what is the culminating charge and question uttered at the end of book three. Book three, we have titled The King's Crisis Over God's Promises. The King's Crisis Over God's Promises. And as you journey through what is book three in the Psalms, you find yourself in Psalms that articulate uh, in very clear language a crisis of faith. That, That there is something going on in the heart of the king and the psalmists who write in book three, where they are looking at the promises of God that he has made in the past, and they're looking at their present circumstances, and they're seeing a disparity between their current present circumstances and the promises that they know that God has made. And lament comes out of the voice and the pen of the psalmist. In book three, lament that builds and builds and builds and culminates into what really becomes a charge against God in the last chapter of book three, chapter 89, Psalm 89. A charge comes from the pen of the psalmist. Out of this articulation of this sincere language of a crisis of faith, this charge comes against God from the mouth of the psalmist. And after recounting all the promises that God has made concerning His people, and in particular the covenant that He has made with His servant David, His commitment to His throne, and the covenant that He has made with His line. These words come from the mouth of the psalmist in Psalm 89, verses 38 and 39. Listen as he says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant With your servant, you have defiled his crown in the dust. And it goes on. These are words that the psalmist is saying to God. 
You have done this. I'm looking and from what I can see, the only conclusion that I can come to is that you have cast off and you rejected. Now this comes after reminding the Lord that He has promised never to cast off, never to reject, that His covenant was everlasting. And now He comes to the end of it and He says, but you have cast off, you have rejected. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. This is a charge that's being uttered by the psalmist against God. And can we just sit there for a second in the tension of that and and just think about the reality that those are bold words to utter against the Almighty. And yet, in remembering the purpose of the Psalms, These words, this language is language that is placed into our very mouths. Remember that the Psalms are not only God's words to us, as the rest of Scripture is, but in a unique way, the Psalms are actually God's provision of words for us to Him. How many times have you been in a place where, where you're going through a certain circumstance and, and you, you want to pray, but you don't know how you should pray? You, you know that you ought to pray, but you're not even sure how to articulate the things that are going on in your mind and in your heart. And God has given us the Psalms as language, words that are literally placed in our mouths to return to Him in prayer, which truly each of these psalms are not only a song, but a prayer to God. In these words, we are invited to partake and fill our mouth with them. To to shape these words with our own tongues and mouths and return to God the very words that He gave us for Him. And so we come to Psalm 89 and these words are formed in our mouth when we say, you, you have, this charge comes, you, you have. And we see in this charge an articulation of what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, perplexion. When we know what God has promised and yet we look at our present circumstance and to us it seems that there's a disparity between these two things. The psalmist is looking upon and recounting the promises of God, looking at the present circumstance 
and hear me, falsely, falsely, but truly believing in that moment that God has indeed forgotten and forsaken and that the present circumstance believing in that moment the psalmist is believing as he makes that charge against God in that moment of honesty he is believing that the present circumstance will be the reality that is to dominate the future. In that moment, he's believing that the present circumstance will be the reality that will dominate the future. But the resurrection of our Lord and Savior should be enough to convince us otherwise. even though we too often find ourselves in this position. Considering the future to be as bleak as the current situation and reckoning unto God rather than ourselves the failure in keeping His promises. It's why last week's message of that resolve that we are called to as believers, as Blake was articulating even this morning in this understanding of of original sin, that that should not cause us to sit back and say, oh well, let the world go to hell and I'll follow, but rather that should cause a resolve within true believers to say, I will not carry on in that. I will groan and I will move forward with resolve into the righteousness and the holiness that God has called me, as Paul would say, the upward call. It should motivate us. In these moments, we should look upon the resurrection of our Lord and remember that in the moment that it seems the darkest, the dawn of the Lord is coming. But here, not knowing where else to place the reason for this seeming departure of the favor of God in His most difficult time, in the midst of crisis and the deepest descent of His melancholy, the psalmist is so bold as to say in chapter 89, verse 49, Lord, where is Your steadfast love of old, which by Your faithfulness You swore to David? So not only is there a charge now of God you have forsaken, but now a question comes out of that charge because he knows nowhere else to place this departure of favor. And he asks the question, a question that many of us have also asked, but maybe not been so bold to utter. We have asked it within ourselves, O Lord, where is your steadfast love? How feeble and how weak does it show us to be and yet how true of us that at the moment of greatest crisis we doubt the perfect love of our Lord. 
We, we, we sang earlier, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thy compassions, they fail not. Now, really, we would actually say that the Lord doesn't have passions. He has perfections, but we're trying to articulate that, that even in that perfection, there is an affection for us that is not affected, but it is perfect. It fails not. It's, it's a perfection. It never changes. As we said so many weeks ago, the greatest reason to believe that God will never stop loving you is to understand that He never started. Not to say He doesn't love you, He does. But in His perfection, He never began loving you. He has for eternity loved you completely. Which is the greatest reason to believe that He will never stop loving you. It should be encouraging nonetheless that we are invited to bring even our perceived disappointments to the Lord. That's what's happening as God puts these words in our mouths. We're invited to bring even our perceived disappointments to the Lord. And I say perceive, for if ever there is anything that we could rely on to be true, it is the faithfulness of the Lord and of His love. Because even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Faithful. So hear me. Church, God would not be very mighty if He could not hear our complaints, and we are here invited to give them, but with caution and conviction to hear his response when he answers through his word. Let us not forget Job in the same sort of way, bringing his charge to the Lord. And what does the Lord say to Job? He invites, it, he invites it to come. Ask your question. Make your charge. But then what does He say? Men, you should know this verse. God looks at Job and He says, Gird yourself like a man, for now I will answer you. Every male in this building knows what that means. Gird yourself like a man, for now I will answer you. And God does answer. He invites us to bring our even perceived disappointments, to make our charge. But now in that invitation, we're called to, to stand back and to hear the Lord when He responds. Hear Him when He says, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Or here, as it says in Romans 9, shall the clay say to the potter, why have you formed me this way? And so we're invited to give these honest questions and these charges, but with caution and conviction to hear God's response when He answers through His Word. I pray that that question obviously asked 
by each of us at different times will at least be answered a little today in bringing comfort from Psalm 91. For Psalm 91 really is a psalm of comfort and confidence in the Lord. It, it speaks of the faithfulness of God as the rest of book 4 does, not allowing us to remain in the muck and mire of the charge and question of Psalm 89, but answering for us the question that indeed, though this life for us individually is not without trial or even painful circumstance, our hope, our hope is rightly placed in the Lord. Truly, as Isaiah says, and Paul agrees, anyone who puts their trust in the Lord will not be disappointed. So let's look at Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2. How is that for an introduction? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, this psalm comes to us in three distinct parts and a few different distinct voices. You may have caught that as we were reading together where, where the, the point of view changes as you're reading through the psalm. Verses 1 and 2 are the first part of the psalm and really give us the theme of this whole psalm when it says that, that we can find shelter and refuge in the Lord. They give an affirmation to us as God's people, His family formed by His Word, that God is in fact our refuge. But notice, even in this portion, it comes to us in two different voices. Do you see it? Verse 1 comes to us in the third person telling the story, so to speak, from an outside perspective. He, so you can point your finger at that guy, whoever he is, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwells will abide. It's from an outside perspective, but in verse 2, the voice changes to the first person, and now the writer of the psalm is writing and telling their own story, if you will, by intimating, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That leads us into part two of the psalm, which is verses three through 13. And you'll notice that the voice changes again. These verses give us a description of how the Lord is our refuge. So verses 1 and 2 just proclaim the truth that God is a refuge for those who find shelter in Him. But verses 3 through 13 now describe, they, they begin to describe how the Lord is a refuge for us, the kind of protection that He gives. But now the psalmist is, though by virtue of the psalm and its place in Scripture, he's speaking to us. Truly, what is he doing? He's He's speaking to himself. He will deliver you. He will deliver you. The psalmist is reminding himself, speaking to himself, saying, God will deliver you. Don't forget, self. 
God will deliver you. This becomes very personal. Preaching, as it were, to himself the sufficiencies of the Lord. This is not merely some pep talk. This is what it means to, as we say so often, preach the gospel to ourselves. And we'll get to that some more later. Finally, the third part of this psalm, for it does come to us in three parts, is unique. Not entirely unique in all the psalms, but unique for this psalm, as it only happens once here in Psalm 91. But this third part, verses 14 through 16, the voice changes again, doesn't it? Now, who's speaking? God Himself is speaking. And he's speaking in the first person, telling his own story. It's not the psalmist, but it's actually representing the voice of God himself. And here, in this portion of the psalm, we see a confirmation by God himself that he is, in fact, our refuge. Three distinct parts telling us that God is our refuge, how he is our refuge, and an affirmation from God himself that he is, in fact, our refuge. So look at verses 1 through 2 again. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This psalm has meant a lot to me as, as I have grown up because even as a little child singing in the church, we would sing those first two verses of that psalm over and over again. He who dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my shelter. And my fortress, my God in Him will I trust. I mean, I didn't really know what I was singing when I was two, three, four years old. But as I've grown up and I've begun to begin to have a concept of what it means to take shelter, to have refuge, when I walked slogging through three feet of water as my house was flooded in 1995 and my dad says to my family, well, we've never been homeless before. Finding shelter at a friend's home, understanding what it means to take refuge from the weather outside. As I begin to formulate an idea of what it means to find shelter in something, as I would go through different crises in my life, this song would come back to my memory. Find myself singing it in the shower, singing it as I drive, singing it as I weep, finding comfort, being reminded that though I seek comfort and shelter and refuge in so many lesser things, that truly where my shelter and refuge is, is in the Lord. 
What is a refuge? Definitively, it's a place of security, of safety. As it says here in verse 2, perhaps more clearly, a, a fortress, a place of protection from outside dangers, whether they be natural or enemy. But the word refuge carries with it more than just an inanimate sense of structure, a foundation, four walls, and a roof. But rather, inherent in the word refuge is the idea of hope. In fact, even in some of the older English translations, that word hope is used here in the first couple verses of Psalm 91. That's why the picture given in verse 1 connected with the descriptions of verses 3 through 6 where it speaks about how God is our refuge when it says, For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Now, what needs to be delivered from the snare of a fowler? The, the fowl. <laughs> the fowl is what needs to be delivered from the snare of of the fowler. And so we see the psalmist now developing a picture for us of, of something that he's describing to, to help us understand the refuge of the Lord. And, and he places himself and he places us in the position of being a, a bird, fowl. And you see that as he continues, that the the metaphor sticks. He says, from the deadly pestilence, from disease, he'll cover you with his pinion. So now, not only are we a bird, but now God himself is being described as a bird, but, but not just as any bird, as a, as a mother bird or a father bird. And, and now he's covering with his own wings. He'll cover you with his pinions under his wings. You will find, and hear the word we have again, refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler, but the shield that we see here in this picture is not one of, of iron or bronze or, or any other kind of metal. It's the shield of that mother bird or that father bird's wing as he puts it over his youngling. We see this picture of some kind of bird with her young taking refuge in the bosom, in the secret place, in the shadow under the wing where there is security, safety, protection from outside evils, and best of all, a living warmth and affection. What was the question at the end of chapter 89? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? And what is the picture now that we're given? We're given this picture of an open arm, this wing welcoming in the children of God to find refuge, warmth, affection, and from that place, ultimately, hope. Hope. Just the other day, we thought that we had found a safe program to put on the television for our kids while we were trying to get something done. 
and it was kind of the babysitter, and you know, you can judge me if you want, but that happens in our house from time to time. And, and so we put on a nature program thinking that this would be safe for our kids. Our kids love wildlife and animal life, and we could put this on, and, and it would be very good for them and educational perhaps and enjoyable, only to find that the program that we had placed was one that showed little birds that were outside the protection of the refuge of the secret place of their mother uh, birds and other birds of prey were sweeping down to grab these birds and carry them away to their destruction. We learned this to the screams (laughs) of our children asking us to please turn it off and make it go away. And you laugh because you already have that picture in your mind. You you somehow already understand this picture that the psalmist is painting for us and both the contrary picture as well, what it means to not be found in the shelter of the Most High, in the shadow of the Almighty. You may think it funny to consider God as a hen or any other fowl. Even a bird of prey does not do justice when considering the majesty of our Creator. There's nothing in a bird that should cause us to liken it unto God. So I want you to be mindful of what's happening here. There are not many of a reasonable age who have not seen with their own eyes in nature or have had represented through story of one kind or another, whether through narration or a picture book or novels or even in film, the way in which a mother bird hovers over her young. The way a duck or a goose leads and sometimes hems in her chicks or the way a hen roosts over the top of them. The way an eagle will bring back prey of one kind or another to feed from its own mouth into the mouths of its young. We've seen this. We've observed it or at least heard about it and have a picture of this in our mind's eye. So what's happening here? God is speaking to us of himself through his word here in what we call a condescending way. Not a condescending tone, like, don't you get it, you dummy? That's a condescending tone. That's not what's happening here. But rather, he who is high above is stooping down low in the same way that an adult might get down to be eye level with a child and speak to them and look at them in their eyes and make sure that they use words that this child can understand and comprehend so that they can go forth with the message that is being said to them. God is stooping down, not with condescending tone, but as Calvin describes it, in baby talk. In baby talk so that we can understand, even through pictures of nature, the meaning of what he is saying here and can relate as best as we are able 
to finitely grasp what is being said of the infinite one and find what is said here deep comfort and affection. Such an endearing image. And here we are invited not to simply take refuge in a fortress of inanimate wood or stone, but rather to be gathered to the very bosom of our God to find comfort, strength, and safety under the shadow of His wing. That in being His and belonging to Him, as question one in the Heidelberg Catechism says, we would find that whether in body or soul, in life or in death, our hope, our refuge, is in belonging to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the problem? As it says in our kids' notes. The problem is that there are many things that we are tempted to place our hope in that isn't God. Many things that we seek comfort in that aren't the Lord. So many things that we look to in hopes of finding some provision of strength or ability to persevere. But the call here in Psalm 91, even though it is a psalm of comfort, even though it is a psalm calling us to the protection of God, with it comes a call to forsake all other comforts. The baby chick is not able to drag some other comfort with it under the shadow of the mother hen. Rather, all other safety must be abandoned and it must run directly to the secret place, to the shadow of its wings. The call here is to abandon all other forms of comfort, strength, security, and hope and to find them all in the shelter of the Most High. What what does this mean? It means that thing inside of me that says, well, if if I just get that job, then, then I'll be okay. If, if my kids can just get into that school, then, then I know there's hope. If, if, if we can just make it to next month, then I know we'll be okay. Well, if I can just get away for a few days, then I know that all this stuff will sort itself out and I'll be okay again and we can carry on. If... if If that person will just stop doing that thing that I hate so much, then, then I can... I mean, how many different ways and how many different things and how many different people do we invest our peace by seeking to find comfort, satisfaction, joy, strength, refuge, hope in them. Now listen to me. 
There are good gifts that God has given in nature. In this natural world, marriage, kids, family, work even, wonderful gifts from our Creator, terrible, destructive idols, lousy gods. And when we make those things our refuge, when we seek comfort in someone or something other than God, make no mistake, that is idolatry. And it is sin. Sin that needs to be repented of regularly. For we seek those lesser comforts regularly. We must repent. We must resolve again to say with the psalmist in verse 2, The Lord is my refuge. My God in whom I will trust. I love that here we're not being told that if we will do X, Y, Z, then A, B, C will automatically happen. Right? That if we do X, Y, Z good things, that A, B, C terrible things won't happen to us. But rather that the snare of the fowler, the deadly pestilence, the terror of the night, the arrow of day, pestilence and destruction are all givens. The reason we need shelter from them is because they exist. The reason we need to take refuge from them is because they're there. The psalmist is saying the snare is there. The pestilence, it's there. The terror, it's over there. The arrows are coming from over there. They, they exist. This psalm is not a, a call to, to walk into life with blinders on, pretending like nothing bad ever happens or ever will. It's recognizing that these things are taking place around us. It's as Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. It's a given. But what does he say? Fear not, for I have overcome the world. These things happen, they exist. In a sense here, we're being told that the monsters are real but to take confidence that while a thousand may fall, 10,000 at your right hand, no matter how dark or gruesome it may be or appear to be, all hope is not lost and you can still find shelter in the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Let me ask you a question. How else, how else have the martyrs been able to endure the swords, the lions, the pits of vipers, the firing squads, and the years of imprisonment for preaching the gospel and not failing to bear witness to Christ? How? It was not that the swords did not prick. 
It was not that the lions did not tear, the vipers still delivered their venom, and the guns did not fail to fire and kill. It was not that the prison became a resort. It was that in the midst of these very real perils, those called as faithful found shelter, refuge, fortress, comfort, and hope in the Most High. I'm sure that many of them, enduring such hostilities, meditated here in Psalm 91, singing to each other and to themselves, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall find shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. They would preach to themselves of the excellencies of God and His provision and received even in their sufferings the sovereign hand of God and counted Him faithful to cause them to persevere and know that ultimately no evil should be allowed to befall them or plague come near their tent. For even if they kill the body, they have no power to throw their souls into hell, for that belongs to the one in whom they have found refuge. I told you we'd get back to preaching to ourselves, and here we are as the psalmist is reminding himself, speaking to himself, you, sometimes we need to do that. We need to speak to ourselves and remind ourselves and say, hey, you, Have you forgotten? The Lord is your refuge. The Lord is your shelter. We must at all times, but even more needfully and especially in times of distress or peril or even in times of melancholy or depression, preach to ourselves the truth of who God is and what He has done and what He has promised to us who are in Him by faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But let's just be honest. <clears throat> Can we be honest? Most often the arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God are not somebody else's, but they're our own. And it's here that we must enter into this place and preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. This morning, our call to worship came from Psalm 3, and I would say that Psalm 3 and Psalm 91 are very closely connected in their theme of finding shelter in God. And in both Psalm 91 and Psalm 3, I believe that we see a picture of Christ's burial and resurrection. In Psalm 91... Think about Jesus being the one reading and singing this psalm. And the answer of God to Christ, to Jesus, as He sings and meditates and prays this psalm. At the end here, verse 14 
through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I mean, think about our Lord. Quoting from Psalm 22, calling on the name of the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is the promise from Psalm 91 that he would answer? Even though in Psalm 22, we don't get to that answer here, we have an answer from God himself to his only beloved son that he would answer him when he cries out to him, that he would rescue him from the danger that he was in. That he would satisfy him with long life and show him his salvation. What is that if not the resurrection of our Lord? We see the same thing in Psalm 3 that we read for our call to worship this morning. Think about our Lord when we read the words that say, I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. Do you remember when Jesus comes into the house of the girl who's died? And everyone's wailing. And he pushes him away. And what does he say? She's just asleep. She wasn't asleep. She was dead. But she was asleep. And when Christ offered up himself on the cross for us and for our sins, when he gave up his last, and what did he say? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What's what's another way of saying that? My refuge. In my fortress, my God, in whom I trust, I lay down and slept, buried in submission to the Holy Spirit. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Church, this is resurrection. This is hope. And this is what we must preach to ourselves. We must take our thoughts captive, turn them into prayers to God. This is how we find and take refuge in the Most High. This is how we say, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. But if we say that, We can't turn then and continue to dwell on every evil thing that may seem to be falling us. For if that is the case, then truly our hope was not in Christ, but rather we prayed a religious prayer that we hoped would take away all of our problems. And that's not faith. 
That's presumption. It's superstition. It's the very thing. And we would be remiss, even at this lateness of time, not to draw our attention to this very real reality that it is this psalm, a portion of this psalm, that Satan tried to twist to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And what was he tempting him with? Presumption. To presume upon God that if you do this, then you can hem God into a corner and make Him do something. That is not how the Almighty operates. And what did Jesus say to Satan? The Word also says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And yet we tempt Him. Often, presuming upon Him, treating true religion like superstition rather than simply placing our hope and our trust in Him. But this is the reality. You cannot trust Him with your life if you have not yet trusted Him with the security of your soul. And there are many who fill the pews of churches around the world who presume upon God, who seek to try and trust Him with their natural life, but have not yet actually trusted Him with their eternal soul. But what is the promise to the one who holds fast to God in love? What does it say? There in verses 14 through 16, I will deliver him. I will deliver him. And that God has upheld his word to Jesus should cause us to grow in faith knowing and trusting and believing that He will keep that promise to us as well. Amen? That I can place my confidence and my trust in Him for He has proven Himself to be faithful and I can see that in Jesus. One more thing as we close. There's a scene towards the end of Jesus' ministry after the triumphant entry, as he and the disciples are gathered into Jerusalem, where Jesus stands up and above Jerusalem and he looks down upon the city. And you can read about it in the Gospels, this account in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. He says these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here, speaking as God Himself, intimates this picture again that we've heard about in Psalm 91, this picture of a hen longing to gather the children of Israel under the shelter of His wings. And this is what I have to say to you this morning, church. Christ longs to gather you to Himself. In fact, He is gathering you to Himself right now. That is what the Lord's Day is for us. Christ gathering His people to Himself, sheltering them through His Word preached and taught and sung and prayed and eaten through bread and wine. But hear the warning. What did He say? I longed to gather But what? You were not willing. And what was the outcome? See, your house is left to you desolate. My job this morning, my my job this morning is to proclaim this word to you, to call you and to remind you that the Lord wants to, He longs to gather you to Himself. That you would find true comfort and hope, refuge and fortress under the shadow of His wing. That's my job today. To call you to that. To remind you of that. It's why God sent His prophets. But the children of Israel were not willing. Why? Because they sought comfort in the high places. They sought comfort in the altars of Baal, in the sacrifices to the Asherah pole. And the call to you today is to forsake all other comforts to tear down the high places in your heart where you seek those things in other places and to be gathered to Christ this morning and find refuge, hope, and shelter in Him. Are you willing Or will you continue to run away, continue to seek shelter in things that ultimately will leave you desolate and your house destroyed? Come to Him. Run to Him. Find shelter in Him. And find the promise of salvation. Not for once upon a time when you prayed a prayer, but an abiding dwelling salvation that hems you in at every turn. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, I thank you that this morning in this psalm we have been taught that you watch over the safety of your people. 
that you never fail us in the hour of danger, and that we have been encouraged, exhorted to advance, to carry on through every peril, secure in the confidence of your protection. God, may this truth be one of great use to us today. One that carries us into every tomorrow. For though many talk of your providence and many profess to believe that you exercise guardianship over your children, few have been found actually willing to trust their safety to you. God, may we be counted among those few. May you cause us by your Spirit today to place our hope and our trust in you. And may we find what you have promised that all those who put their trust in you will not be disappointed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.